Psalm 3. So, um, storytellers and, uh, and those who read stories, those who know stories, study stories, literature, uh, they know that there are a few essential elements to stories, just a few really. Uh, like you need characters, you need some kind of a plot, but um, one, of, one of the essential elements to stories is conflict. Without some sort of conflict to resolve uh, in your story, you just don't have much of a story at all. Um, conflict isn't just a feature of storytelling. Conflict is a feature of the main story of the world, of the history of the world, the history. It's, it's, uh, it's everywhere in life and history. I'm not sure we can say conflict is an essential element of life, not the way we usually understand conflict. We usually understand it as like enmity. Uh, because we believe that enmity will eventually be uh, erased from reality in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no more conflict, kind of enmity conflict after that. <clears throat> and so, uh, so real life, eternal life, true life in the new heavens and the new earth won't be characterized so much by conflict. But conflict is a difficult, painful, constant reality in this world. It's a constant reality in, uh, in our lives, and Psalm 3 is a help to us in times of conflict. It's a real help to us in times of conflict. Psalm 3 doesn't provide a roadmap to the victory that I want in every conflict, but it assures us that God gives us His victory. It's the really important one. He's, he's defining what victory is for us, and He's giving it to us. That's the real victory that we need, and he gives it to us. So <clears throat> let's unpack Psalm 3. Let's see how it helps us in times of conflict, whatever the nature of your conflict might be. Uh, let me make two quick introductory comments before we read it. Uh, as Joe mentioned when he read it as, um, as our prayer earlier in the service, uh, it's, it's the first psalm with a title. It gives us some information, right? So um, right there before verse 1, <clears throat> you'll, you'll see the title. It says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, Absalom his son. It provides us a connection to that story. That story is a reference point for us. So that's going to be important for us as we read this psalm. And there are a lot of psalms that have titles like that. Here's the first one of them. It's also the first psalm to use the word Selah. And um, I'm not sure exactly what that means. In fact, scholars uh, have debated and written lots of stuff about that little word because not, uh, nobody really knows what it means, what that word, uh, like the, what it came from, uh, what it signifies. You know, some people have ideas that it gives you some musical instructions. Uh, but the, the best guess that I've seen, one scholar referred me to another scholar, some article written in 1864, um, that basically that the word silah means, uh, it, it's like use the first verse as a refrain at this point. Um, I hadn't considered that before studying it this week, but, um, but it actually makes a lot of sense. The, the article that I looked at um, did a pretty good job arguing that. So that's what I'm going to do as I read it this morning. I'm going to use the first verse as a refrain, whatever it says, Selah. Um, so we'll, we'll try that and see how it goes. Uh, so let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we need your help always when we come to your word. Every time we open the scriptures, we need your help. We need your spirit's help so that we can hear your voice in it, so we can be changed by it, so we can believe it and be fashioned and refashioned into the likeness of Christ. That's what we want and that's the work that only you can do, so we pray for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. 
O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, like I said, that title is really helpful. It's a a David psalm, literally is what that says. Um, It's translated here in the English Standard Version, a psalm of David. It just says, a David psalm, when he fled from Absalom, his son. It might be that David is the author. Or it might be that this psalm was sort of dedicated to him with particular reference to this point in his life, this story of when he fled from Absalom, his son. But the explicit connection to that concrete part of David's story that you find in 2 Samuel, uh, the explicit connection, it helps us to get a better sense of what Psalm 3 is about. It's the story of David and uh, his son Absalom is, a, is basically a tragic one. It's basically a tragic one. It, be, it begins in um, 2 Samuel chapter 13, where... Uh, just for the sake of all those present, let's just say some really terrible things happen in David's family. Really terrible things happen in David's family with his children. One of his children committing a great evil against another one of his children. And David, who's the father, he's the king, he's the king of Israel. He did nothing to resolve the relational crisis between his children and his family. He didn't act like a good king. He didn't even act like a good father. He avoided the conflict and it was a pretty serious, severe conflict, but he was hands off. And that's, uh, that's familiar probably to a lot of us as a reaction that we have to conflict, right? You hear fight or flight, uh, aggression or avoidance of conflict. And both of those are fear-driven reactions, fear-driven reactions that we have to conflict. When your reaction to conflict is to fight, well, it means that you've sort of just in a, in a moment, assessed a threat. You've assessed a threat, and you think you can win the conflict by attacking and even destroying the opponent. When your reaction to conflict is to flee, it means you assess the threat, and you think it would actually be in your self-interest to avoid the conflict altogether. <clears throat> Maybe you don't want to destroy your opponent you're just going to let things alone, maybe even pretend there's nothing wrong so that you don't rock the boat. That happens a lot um, in our lives when we encounter conflict. David, like all of us, is driven by fear in different ways. He's uh, driven by fear in different ways at different times of his life. So sometimes when he encounters conflict, he just gets rid of his opponent and sometimes here, like, like here, it looks like he avoided the conflict in his family. He was just passive. He just uh, didn't address it. 
didn't lead his family through it like he should have. One of his sons, though, Absalom, had the fight reaction to the conflict, and he took matters into his own hands in a bad way. He gave the command to have one of his brothers murdered. He was a half-brother of his. He had him murdered. He got his revenge two years after the initial conflict, so it was not good. It was not good what's happening in David's family, and then after that, it gets worse, and the wheels just come off. Absalom stole the hearts of the people away from his father, their king, their true king, the rightful king, stole them away, the people of Israel and the people of Judah. He conspired to take the kingdom away from his father, and David went on the run. So David was on the run now, betrayed not just by his son, whom he loves, but by all of his people. He's been betrayed. So if you can imagine what that's like, that's sort of the emotional context that we have for Psalm 3. Just imagine the, the emotional context there. So Athanasius uh, wrote a long time ago, if persecuted by your own people and you have a whole crowd against you, say Psalm 3. <laughs> that's that's the, the kind of thing this is for. The thing to remember here is that David is not just a... He's not merely an innocent victim. He's not merely an innocent victim. His household was a wreck. I mean, first of all, just the way it started off, you're not supposed to have multiple wives. And he had multiple wives, and he had children by each of these wives, and they're in these terrible relationships. And the relationships of his children in this episode of his life, they really, they just illustrate that his household was a wreck because of him. him. Because of him. His children had sinned against the Lord, and they'd sinned against one another, and it was all compounded by then his inaction, his conflict avoidance. The loving and right thing to do, he had not done. He had not acted like the king and not acted like the father God called him to be. He had not helped resolve this conflict between his children when he should have. Um, So now what was happening to him is he's being persecuted by his son, betrayed by the nation. What's happening to him is wrong. It shouldn't have happened. But he was at least in part reaping what he had sowed. Which was, uh, you know, now he's reaping a terrible betrayal by his people, led by his own dear son. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the loop that would be running in your mind, especially when you lay down to sleep at night, if you can lay down to sleep at night? The constant track in your mind, the constant temptation to depression and to despair. What if I had done things differently? Why is this happening? Is this all my fault? And so he says in verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me, including his own son. He faces a growing opposition. It's active. They're pursuing him. It's dangerous. It's a threat to his personal safety. It's a very personal opposition. Nobody's saying, David, don't take this personally, but (laughs) no, they're coming after his person. This is a very personal opposition. And the most difficult part of it, he says, it's true, the most difficult part of it is that it throws into question his relationship with God. That's the most difficult part of this conflict for him. Because it says in verse 2, many are saying of my soul, not just me, they're not just saying it of me, they're saying it of my soul, There's no salvation for him in God. 
That's the thing he's, that's gnawing away at him. His enemies are hitting below the belt, the boxing term, right? It's a low blow. It's a cheap shot. They're trying to do him the, the worst harm that they can do. They aren't just hounding him. They're looking to demoralize him utterly, to cause him to despair. It's like the villain, you know, in the movies who's looking for revenge, and he finds the hero who's his enemy, and he says, I'm not just going to kill you. I'm going to make you watch as I take away everything you love. I'm going to destroy your life, and then at the end of it, I'm going to kill you. That's, that's sort of the way the enemies are coming after David here. The worst pain that they can inflict on David The worst pain is for him to believe that God has abandoned him. And it can be very tempting to believe that when you're in a conflict like this. He's in a mess that he can't sort out. can't just manage his way to better results. His own sins are a contributing factor, obviously. So he can't just plead innocence. He can't just say, oh, they're persecuting a righteous person here. He can't consider himself the righteous sufferer. He's he's not just the good guy. He's not just the good guy. He needs to be saved. He needs to be delivered by God. And his enemies, the thing they want him to hear is that God's not going to do it. He's not going to save you. Now, it's unlikely that you've made such a dysfunctional home that your megalomaniacal son will pursue you with an army someday. Uh, That's not likely. But in this world, you are a person who lives in conflict, probably more frequently than, than you're aware of. You're a person who lives in conflict with other people, probably most frequently with people who are close to you people that you care about, people who are important to you, people that you love. We're in conflict all the time in this world. And in case it's news to you, you don't have a sparkling clean rap sheet. Your sins against God and your sins against other people often contribute to your conflicts and make them worse. You may not be the only one responsible, but in most conflicts you're at least partially responsible. Because of your sin against God and your sin against others. Maybe they're mostly persecuting you. Maybe you're mostly the victim. And that happens. Maybe what they're doing to you is terribly wrong, but you're still stuck with the nagging question, how much of this did I bring down upon myself because of my sin? Because I'm not actually a righteous person. And the worst part of wrestling like that isn't trying to figure out how to win the battle, how to win the conflict, get victory and get get your way. The worst part of it is the temptation to believe that your contribution to this conflict puts you beyond the the reach of God's grace. It puts you beyond God's help. God's not going to help you because you've gotten yourself into this mess. You've made your bed. Now you're going to lie in it and God's not going to save you. Maybe your spouse isn't whispering into your ear while you sleep. There's no salvation for your soul in God. (laughs) Right? That would be pretty terrible. Don't do that. Don't ever do that to your spouse like that in the ear. But maybe that's not happening. But I'll tell you, the chief accuser of God's people is doing that all the time. The chief accuser of God's people, the devil himself and his army, they have ways of getting that bug into your ear and making you condemn yourself and accuse yourself 
and, and put yourself beyond the reach of God's grace. You hear that because your enemies want you to hear it, your spiritual enemies. The, the worst pain that the devil can inflict upon you when you're in a messy conflict is to get you to believe that God has abandoned you to cause you to doubt God's loving care for you. That's the worst the devil can do to you. Is to say, well, this, what you've done now, God's not on your side anymore. 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, your adversary, this is your real enemy, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. That's what he's going after, is your faith. And you resist him firm in your faith. Paul says similar things in Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God. The whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not just picking up swords and hacking away at each other. That's not the real conflict that we have. We're wrestling against the spiritual forces of evil. That's the real conflict. That's the real difficulty. So you might find yourself in conflict with all sorts of people in this world, but your main enemy is not those people. It's, your main enemy isn't another human being. The, ma the main enemy is the devil, the Scriptures say, and his legions who want to devour your faith, whose lowest and most effective blow is to get you to believe there's no salvation for you in God. The answer to this attack of his, then, is simple. Really, it's simple. We should all keep it in our minds all the time. It's to believe the gospel. That's the answer to the devil's attack. To believe that, in spite of everything, all appearances to the contrary even, that there is salvation for you in God. That's the armor of God that helps you to stand against the enemy's demoralizing schemes. So David picks up and he says in verse 3, But you, O Lord, here's what my enemies are trying to get me to believe and wreck my soul. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. So he's saying, I can't manage these circumstances. I'm not strong enough. I don't know how much of this is my own fault. I'm certainly not innocent here. I'm tempted in my soul to despair of, of your help. That's the temptation that I'm facing, is that, that you've forsaken me. Nevertheless, you've not forsaken me. Nevertheless, you, O oh Lord, you protect me from the enemy's worst assaults. You're a shield about me. You are the glory of my life. You're the substance of my life. You're, you're everything to me. You are the one who helps me to face this conflict with my head held high even. Even though I'm not blameless, I can hold my head high. I can't even visualize what victory means. I can't visualize what it's going to be like to come out and emerge the other side of this conflict, but I can hold my head high because of you. You're the one who lifts up my head. <clears throat> so David moves from despair and panic, at least the temptation to those things, to a reassured hope, to a settled confidence, when he considers 
the Lord. And we praise to Him. When He considers the Lord whom He knows to be a Savior, who listens to the cries of His people, that's how God's revealed Himself throughout the Scriptures. He's the one who knows. He's the one who hears. He's the one who responds when we call. That's who He is. David hasn't done a bunch of self-talk like you see on the television seminars. I'm valuable. I'm a good, strong person. I deserve respect. You know, talking talking himself up. Self-help. He's not thinking about that. He's thinking about who God is. He's thinking about how he really does have a relationship with God because of God's grace, because of who God is. How is that legitimate? How can he do that? I mean, there's... How can he trust that God has his back when he's been culpable in this whole huge mess? It's a national mess that he's in, large, in large part due to his own sins. So how can he trust that God has his back anyway? He hasn't been the good guy who obviously deserves God's help with this conflict. How can he presume that the holy God would be unquestionably committed to him? Unquestionably committed to him. How can we? Keep our heads held high and trust that the Lord is unquestionably committed to us even when our enemies bring true accusations against us. Or we're in a mess of conflict in large part because of our own, our own doing, our own sin. You can know that God is unquestionably committed to you in spite of everything, no matter what the accusations are, how true or false, no matter the nature of the conflict, you can know it because He sent His Son to take care of all the accusations that come up against you. He sent His Son to take care of all the true accusations that stand against you. You sin. You've ruined your life through your sin. For your part, you've brought a mess of conflict into your relationship with God. There's conflict there. There's enmity there for our part. But, but God knows all of this. God knows all of it, and He sent His Son to forgive you. He sent His Son to fix it, to repair the relationship, to take away the conflict that exists between us and God. And He did it even though it took the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross in order to do it. That's unquestionable commitment if he's willing to do that. Because Jesus, he's the perfect one. He's the pure and faithful one. He's the completely innocent victim. Everything that he suffered in his life, all the attacks, all the conflict, he didn't deserve any of that. <clears throat> he suffered betrayal by his own dear people, by one of his closest friends. He suffered this betrayal and he's the one who heard all the taunts that were citing God's abandonment of us. He heard that fall on his own ears at the cross. Because it could be said of us, God has abandoned you because of your sin. But he stepped in and he took all those taunts himself. It said in Matthew 27, which is our New Testament reading that Rainey read, um, over and over again, the people who were there, the by, bystanders, even the, the people who were next to him on other crosses were shouting at him and mocking him and taunting him, saying, he trusts in God, let him deliver him. It's not going to happen. They're basically saying to him, there's no salvation for him in God. God's abandoned him. God's rejected him. God's forsaken him. He didn't deserve to hear that. 
But it became true of him. It became true of him insofar as he was given up to death, but he was given up for us in our place. And not only that, but he was raised from the dead for us. He wasn't abandoned. He was raised up from the dead for us. As it says in our passage in Psalm 3, he lay down and slept. And then he awoke again, for the Lord sustained him. He died. And then God raised him from the dead. There is salvation for us in God. His name is Jesus. So Romans 5, Paul says, If while we were enemies, we were in conflict with God, there was enmity that existed between us and God. If while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved. There's salvation for us by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The enmity, the conflict between us and God is done away with. It doesn't matter what you deserve. If... God was willing to give his son's life for you, his enemy, then you can know he is unquestionably committed to you. To be your shield, to be your glory, to be the lifter of your head in any and every circumstance, even in the messy conflicts that are of your own making. Even when you've gotten yourself into a, a, a pretty mess. And that knowledge of God's commitment to you that comes through the gospel of His gracious love, ultimately, in Jesus Christ, it can make such a difference in your life, especially when you're in conflict, which is a a regular feature of our lives, of all our stories. So David goes on in verse 5 and 6, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Tens of thousands of people encamped against me, set against me, all around me, surrounding me. I won't even be afraid. There can be a lot of stress involved in conflict. (laughs) I'm not sure any of us has felt stress like that on the run from your son and and from your own nation. But there can be a lot of stress when you're running conversations over and over again in your head. It can easily affect your health. It can affect your sleep. I mean, how many of you have thought at some point in your life, this conflict is giving me gray hairs. This conflict, I'm getting an ulcer from this. I have insomnia. I can't sleep at night because this is, my mind is racing over and over again because of this conflict. Being in conflict is not a restful place to be. Not naturally. It's not naturally a restful place to be, but when you believe the gospel, you can rest. It really matters in any kind of conflict. If you believe the gospel, you can rest in, in God and His love. Trusting the gospel actually helps even with things like physical stress that affects your body and your sleep. Trusting the gospel actually helps with fear of others, even tens of thousands of enemies camped against you. David can say that knowing God, knowing the Lord, knowing this relationship that he has with God because of God's grace, 
Knowing God even offsets the fear of being surrounded by whole armies full of enemies. Paul picks this up, I think, again in Romans 8. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The whole armies could be against us, but it doesn't really matter. If God is for us, who can be against us? They could even bring an end to your physical life, this army that's encamped against you. They could kill David. But you don't have to be afraid of that. You don't have to be afraid of any enemy. The only thing you should fear is whether there is salvation for you in God. And the gospel of Jesus Christ answers that question clearly. God is for us. Period. He is for us. Because he didn't spare his own son. You know it. So, who can bring a successful charge against you that would turn God away from you? Nobody. Who can threaten the salvation that's there for you in Christ? Nobody. Who can condemn you in God's sight? Nobody. No one can. Because of Jesus. So even though many thousands of people set themselves against you all around, you don't need to be afraid of them. You don't need to be afraid of any enemies. The conflict can't really do anything to you. Not really. You can have real confidence about that, especially in prayer. David continues in prayer, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. So this this fearlessness, not being afraid of all his enemies, this kind of confidence in God, it doesn't come instinctively. It probably isn't just going to be running in the background of your life all the time, making you fearless everywhere you go. You never have to think about the gospel. You're just fearless. That's not how it works. It's something that you consciously acquire in your relationship with God through prayer. So this psalm isn't about how to manage outcomes of conflict. You might die at the end of this conflict. You might lose all of your wealth at the end of this conflict. People that you love might walk away from you at the end of this conflict. It's not about managing those outcomes. It's about how it doesn't matter what happens. Your relationship with God is secure, which is the true victory. In spite of everything, you can say, God is for me because of Jesus. He's not going to abandon me. This conflict right now, whatever the outcome, isn't testimony that God has abandoned me. The true victory is when God humiliates your true enemies. Who are those true enemies again? The spiritual forces of of evil. The true victory is when God humiliates them. That's what the strike on the cheek is. It's like a humiliating blow. And the true victory is when God breaks their power to do you harm. He knocks out their teeth, crushes their ability, especially to speak, the power of speech. Your true enemy is the devil. He wants you to doubt God. His schemes are lies and accusations. The Bible says his power is death. His power is death. So what's the worst thing your enemies can try to do to you? If you think the worst thing that they can do to you is kill you, you're wrong. You're wrong. Doesn't matter who your enemy is. Doesn't matter what kind of weapons they have. Doesn't matter how they come at you. The worst thing they can do to you is not actually end your physical life. The worst they can try to do 
is cause you to think that you're too sinful to be saved, that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, that God has abandoned you because look, look at you. The worst they can try to do is cause you to believe that your circumstances show, obviously, that God has abandoned you. All that your true enemies have to say, it just amounts to this, God doesn't love you. God doesn't love you. If you believe that, it would wreck your life, ruin your soul. But Jesus came to make us know that God loves you, and he's unquestionably committed to you. He came to to make you know that there's nothing your enemies can do about that. They can't stop God from loving you. They can't stop him from being with you, even though you're still a sinner. Even though you don't deserve God's love. And now, when death bit down on Jesus, that's the worst enemy, that's the last enemy the scriptures say. When death bit down on Jesus, its power was broken. Its teeth were shattered. Its power to destroy and to separate us from God, even death can't do that now. It's ended. That power's over. Now death basically has a full set of dentures that fall out every time he bites down on somebody who's in Christ. His power has, has no hold over us. 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter on resurrection, Paul says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's the last one you're going to face in this life. Because God loves you and gave his son Jesus for you, and because God's power is the, the kind of power that raises Jesus from the dead, That's Ephesians, right? It's resurrection power. That's the nature of God's power. Because his power is resurrection power, your enemy is vanquished and his power is broken. Forever. Even your last enemy. Even death. Even if an enemy kills you because of the resurrection power of God, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, death doesn't mean you're forsaken by God. You can't interpret your death as forsakenness and abandonment by God. It's just the opportunity for your resurrection to which God has unquestionably committed himself. The biggest question raised by conflict in our lives is answered. Is there salvation for our souls in God? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. Not because of us, never because of us, but because of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to be a Savior. You are strong and mighty to save. You've rescued us from the deepest conflicts of our life, the the real conflict. Ultimately, the conflict between us and you, you've rescued us from that, the enmity that was there because of our sin, and even the power of our greatest remaining enemies in this world, the the devil and death itself, are nothing before you. We know this is true because of Jesus, because of his life and death and resurrection on our behalf. We're thankful for this gospel that we can cling to, that it can help us through all kinds of conflict. We pray that you would keep our eyes fixed on Christ in ways that help us as we go through conflicts in this life, conflicts with others around us, especially with those we love. These might be difficult things for us, but Um, Help us to know and keep our uh, heads held high because you are our shield. Uh, even, Even for people like us, people who don't deserve it, you're our shield. You've committed yourself to us, and this makes such a difference in our lives in every way. We pray that you would teach us, give us the experience of how that makes a difference in our lives and in the conflicts that we face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.